This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast, presented by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars, offering premium race-spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. On today's show, we're looking back at the start of the MotoGP season, a little bit of a review of what we've seen, and then a look at some of the biggest news that we've seen over the summer break so far. Steve English, Adam Wheeler, Neil Morrison, and David Emmett on today's show, and Adam, let's get straight to it. Penalties in England, what the hell's wrong with you lads? I don't know what sort of penalty we have to pay, Steve, but um, it's uh, uh, you know a bitterly disappointing way to finish a nice couple of weeks of uh, hope, really. Um, I mean, I appreciate there's people who listen to this podcast who really couldn't give a toss about football or the England team or whatever else, uh, including some people on on this call. Three of you, in fact. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll keep it brief, but... Uh, no, it was. Um, I think you know there was just some context around the fine, the big final of a championship. I mean, for all the uh, controversy of having sixty odd thousand people inside a stadium and all the scenes that we saw, you know, of uh, people trying to get in the stadium, some of the behaviour which is inexcusable, and the result of uh, meatheads, basically morons. Um, you know, I can excuse some of the behaviour down to um, pandemic influence frustration, but um, for the rest of it, it's inexcusable. But, you know, it, it, it undoubtedly was an occasion. And I think, you know, it's it was very easy as an England fan um, and an English guy myself to get very much wrapped up in it. You know, my wider family, you know, my dad passed away two years ago. He was a big football fan and we would have shared, we'd have reveled in a day like that. You know, just the, the fact that it was the first kind of, Big event for fifty over fifty years uh, for the England team, and it was um, for me. It was uh, watching it with my younger son. It was like two hours of uh, tension, hell. I mean, I don't have many fingernails left, and um, you know, there was uh, it, ultimately the ending was not as satisfactory. And there's all sorts of uh, dissection analysis going on. But um, I'm kind of glad it's over. Really, I can start looking towards Queens Park Rangers and the inevitable lows that will come with uh, supporting my usual team. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, at least you've got a good season to look forward to with QPR, and then I remembered it's QPR. So uh, for for you, Neil, obviously, as a Northern Irishman that's pretty much half Scottish as well, after going to uni in Glasgow, what gave you more pleasure, the 12th of July or seeing England beaten? Yeah, I have to say that I've given Adam some stick about England uh, on previous podcasts during the Euros. And as a Northern Irishman, you are slightly conditioned to... Um, to bask in uh, England's defeats. But I definitely felt quite conflicted whenever um, they lost the penalty shootout. And it was quite a weird sensation because obviously I was hoping that Italy would win. Um, but just seeing it decided in such a cruel manner uh, was uh, was actually quite difficult to watch. Also the fact that the guys that missed the penalties just all seemed like um, not only impressive um, at what they do, but also kind of impressive young men. Um, I thought uh, that it was it was quite sad. I wasn't really expecting to feel a bit of a kick in the gut as uh, as as I did feel. So um, yeah, rather than than basking in in sort of the the happiness of uh, an England defeat, I was actually a bit worn down by the uh, the drama of it all. So um, yeah, my sympathies sympathies with you, Adam. I love you again now. I mean, I have um, precisely zero interest in football, and uh, were, was asking some of the most uh, banal questions imaginable in uh, in the group chat. But um, uh, even I could see, like, this seemed to be like a uh, a group of impressive young men. It's always sort of impressive when you, and it reminds me that there are there are similar people in the in the paddock. If you think about, you know, Juan Miro, Miguel Oliveira, they're very impressive young men. They're very serious and intelligent young men, and these seemed, you know, for a group of footballers. Um, to be very serious, very impressive, and very um, yeah, you know, committed both professionally and uh, in their personal lives and politically, and I think that's uh, something to be. I mean, you may or may not agree with their uh, politics, but um, uh, they were certainly that they bore their beliefs out with um, integrity and authenticity. And I think I think that was definitely admirable. And uh, I felt, um, you know, like like I say, no interest at all in football, no interest at all in the England football team. Uh, but I still felt um, uh, vaguely disappointed for them that they didn't uh, that they didn't uh, that they didn't win. 
I mean, sport is nothing if it's not drama, tribalism, and, and passion. And I think you know, we you don't have to go that you know, it goes to the extent of football. I think if you look at MotoGP, um, you know, we see evident signs of that uh, from the fan groups, the riders, brands, whatever else. I mean, it's uh, I mean, Valentino. What's MotoGP going to look like when Valentino Rossi inevitably stops, uh, which could be sooner, you know, sooner than we all think. Um, you know, is is uh, the the hue of MotoGP going to change from yellow to a kind of Marquez red? It's just really hard to to know what will happen and to to see where people's passions and allegiances will will drift. But you know, I mean, speaking from experience, I I was very much wrapped up in the whole England team. Um, kind of surge of prominence and, and performance but you know as a kid going to see like Carl Fogarty racing around Brands Hatch there was that same tribalism and, and passion there for what he was achieving in Superbike at the time and really driving that series on in terms of popularity in the UK the same thing I can even go back to like I think it was 1989 or something like that you know the British Grand Prix at Donington Park and seeing Neil McKenzie managed to lead for a lap and a half and I can still remember now very vividly how the crowd kind of you know rose to their feet and went bananas just to see like a, a British you know a, a guy you know at the front of like a 500cc Grand Prix I mean it was a fantastically sunny day super hot um you know it felt like the most amazing place in the world to be at that that moment so um you know the sporting moments like that it's really what you're what you live for um, I mean if you're into it that's that's what gets you going yeah, because I'm going to Aston obviously next week and over the course of my time in World Superbikes I've seen a big change and it's because the Dutch have Mikey van der Mark to support and they want to have a local rider. I remember going, the first time I went to Aston for the Superbike race was in 2013 and van der Mark was in the Supersport class at that stage. It was a very small event and then suddenly once he was on a Superbike and I was going there from 16 onwards, it was a massive crowd and it was big traffic to get into it. It was much more like the GP. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was always um, almost like a a second British Grand Prix or a second a second British round of, of World Superbikes. There would always be a lot of British fans there. Uh, quite often, there'd be more Brits than uh, than Dutch fans. But yeah, Michael Vandermark has had an absolutely massive effect on the popularity. Um, you know, the 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 it, it is it's a fun event now. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a really big it's a really big event and. Um, and it well, you know, it's Aston. It produces great racing. So there's, you know, what's not to like? I have to say one thing, just to to go back to the the tendencies that we all have as fans. It's quite nice to be able to watch an event as a relatively impartial viewer and to be able to just take yourself away from having to really analyse it, like we have to do with racing and things like that. And the football was a good example of it this week for me because I was watching the the English semi-final we were in a pub surrounded by English people and I actually wanted England to win that I wanted the guys I was with to be able to enjoy the night and you know I was quite happy to see England get through to the final and you know on Sunday I was thinking ah, you know what I wouldn't mind seeing England actually get a result and that was the case right up until the moment Italy scored and then I realised I jumped out of the seat to celebrate it like an Ireland goal and it was at that moment that I realised I'm just as bad as every other paddy on the planet. Well, you know, Steve, for me, it was actually the semi-final was the nervier game because, it, one, it was on my birthday. So I have to apologise to my wife for, you know, trawling her around a restaurant to make you know, find a screen to, to watch watch the game. Um, but the other thing is, even as a kid, when I play, I still play football, but um, semi-finals are always the, the nerviest moment because you're almost there. You, you know, it's, it's the last hurdle before you get to the final. And there was something about... You know, getting to that, uh, that last stage, whether you you know you end up winners or second place, that was um, you know much more difficult than you know almost getting there. I mean, I remember being devastated after losing some semi-finals, but you know, eventually, you know, not losing a final was was kind of less traumatic because you knew you were one of the very best teams in that competition. So, um, yeah, the semi-final was, uh, was 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 pretty tough to take. Yeah, I have to say from my perspective, one of the big reasons that I actually really wanted Italy to do well was actually just because of all that you talked about outside the stadium ad. And I was looking at it and I was just thinking fans like that don't deserve to have success. And it's the same as whenever yeah, they see... they're not fans, Steve, are they? Well, that's the thing, you know, and, and it, it's one of those things that we see at races as well, you know, where fans boo riders on the podium. You're there to You're there to see something special. And a lot of times you see something special. It mightn't be the rider you want to win, but that reaction can be really tough. These guys are, you know, a lot of them, 
20, 21, 22 years old, they don't need to be standing on the podium here in booze. And I think that's that's a that's a view that all fans of pretty much every sport do share. But uh, it is that that small minority that do tend to tend to, to tend to blacken it for everyone. The um, uh, snooker promoter Barry Hearn, um, a very very famous uh, sports promoter, he turned snooker and darts, two of the most incredibly tedious sports imaginable, uh, into darts is Dave snooker is tremendous. <laughs> into huge media successes. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're now some of the biggest support. I mean, like, literally, um, here in Holland, again, you know, coming back to local heroes, uh, they're, they're, we have almost like two channels devoted almost entirely to darts whenever there's a darts tournament on. Um, uh, but Barry Hearn said, it, it's soap opera for men. Um, it is the drama and the way that he made the... Uh, a sport like snooker and darts so big is by creating characters by by you know forcing the players to become more uh, you know uh, out you know outrageous more um, uh, more sort of almost caricatures if you like more more real characters because the, you want that partisanship you want to create that partisanship and I think one of the interesting things about when I mean this is what Carl Fogarty did for Carl Fogarty was good at both getting the fans on his side and getting the fans against other people. And uh, it, it, it's the same with Valentina Rossi. Valentina Rossi was always really, really good, both at getting the fans on his side, but also at creating uh, bogeymen, at creating enemies, at you know, creating, turning his rivals into um, figures that, uh, that that his fans could react against. And, and we see that. And I think that is going to be the biggest uh, loss when Valentino Rossi goes. Who's going to create create enemies? Who's going to create uh, sort of you know hate figures that um, that the fans can boo? I, I, I yeah, I think booing people uh, on the podium is incredibly um, stupid. But from an entertainment point of view, you know, purely from a marketing point of view, it's genius. I mean, you want the uh, people will come back if they really the, the, you know they'll watch to to, to see their heroes win but they'll also uh, watch to see their the, the the riders they don't like fail they will and they will watch much more intensely in the hope of seeing that failure i mean you touched on it a bit there dave but i don't really understand the booing of riders still i mean i understand in football you, you you'll hear a boo every two minutes but you know i mean there's a difference between Okay, footballers have some compromises in their lifestyles depending on the league they're playing in and, and the microscope of the media and whatever else. But, you know, when it comes to MotoGP or road racing, it's, um, you know, these guys are essentially risking their lives for the better part of 40 minutes. So I don't understand why you would feel the need to necessarily boo that um, in the aftermath. Um, as much as you may detest Mar Marquez for, you know, his ability or his, um, you know, his devil may care attitude, I think, uh, you know, you're standing up and hurling some sort of uh, or heckling the man or, or, you know, showing some abuse at him. I don't really understand the mentality of that. But it, it's a, it's, they're not seeing him as a motorcycle racer. They're seeing him as, a, as an entertainment figure, as a character in the drama, which is unfolding, unfolding before them. Because when things, when bad things do happen, I mean, uh, you also see the difference when, you know, when someone crashes and gets up and, get, and walks away, then, yeah, there, there might be plenty of booze. But if someone crashes and they stay down, then the atmosphere changes. Then everyone suddenly realizes, oh, yeah, no, hang on, wait a minute, this is actually quite serious. So, yeah, I mean, it's, but uh, like I say, it's entertainment, it's characters, it's drama, it's that kind of character. And you have to have goodies and baddies, you know, you have to have your Darth Vader's and your, uh, and your Luke Skywalker's. So I'm sure uh, I'm sure Neil will be particularly pleased with that uh, analogy. Which, which which one was the bad guy in that? <laughs> I um, I'll uh, send you some books on the moral philosophy, uh, and then you can uh, figure it out for yourself, Steve. I, I thought I thought they were related anyway. I mean, you know. oh yeah, don't ruin it on people, lad. <laughs> yeah, that's <right>. spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler alert on that one, indeed. I'll tell you what, Dave, we better move on swiftly before Adam gives off the plot lines of other major movies from the last 50 years. Um, you've obviously had a, a pretty fun week as well, Dave. You've been out road testing a few new bikes, and uh, what have you been on? Well, I haven't been out on anything yet, Steve. I am, well, I hope to be going out because uh, it's raining. I have to wait. There's no point in testing running, test running anything if it's, uh, if it's wet. Um, I have a test ride on a Triumph Tiger 900 lined up and on a 
uh, KTM 1290 Adventure. Um, I mean, I'm, what I'm trying to do is not buy another BMW GS. Um, the thing about the GS is, you know, the riding position, uh, it has a, you know, it's just a really comfortable bike. Um, I want to know whether the Tiger is going to be comfortable enough, whether it can, you know, carry me and, uh, and my wife wherever we need to go. Uh, same with the KTM. Uh, but I have to make sure, you know, it's about so many things. It's about, you know, the uh, uh, power delivery, uh, comfort, uh, luggage capacity, because it's my only vehicle. It is literally the only vehicle I'll own apart from a bicycle. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I, it has to be usable to me. So uh, I have to figure out if it'll fit me, um, you know, if I can get the bars in the right position, because that's one of the things I like about the GS is, you know, wh where your hands are um, and uh, whether it'll, it'll work like that. Well, in a shameless plug to our sponsors, Rent All Street, we're going to give a shout out then about those bar positions, Dave, because Rent All Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions and the Rent All Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise or sweep of the bar, Rent All Street Handlebars offers a bend to suit your requirements in both 28mm and the traditional 22mm diameter. Use the Rent All Works Fit Handlebar Comparison Tool on rentall.com to find the perfect bend. That is definitely an option for me. I mean, it's definitely an op option for me, like if if it won't fit, uh, then I'll have a look at the uh, Renthal options to see what bars they do have to try and get, you know, that that nice, comfortable, um, uh, get the bars at just the right position. It's, it's quite a surprise for me, actually. I mean, it's really cool that the guys are on, you know, supporting the podcast. But I mean, obviously, it's a brand that's very famous in off-road. Um, you know, you just have to look at the Rebel KTM guys. I mean, they're all using the product. Um, amongst many other teams and, and OEMs um, throughout the sport. But to, to know they actually have a bit of a presence in, in road racing was a, a bit of a surprise. And they have such a vast kind of street catalogue as well. I mean, I think uh, they're right at the top of the tree when it comes to Superbike. It's the, uh, you know, the Kawasaki racing team. I mean, Jonathan Ray and Alex Loza are using the product. So uh, you have to say uh, it's uh, obviously serving those guys well. Yeah, and you see it across the board as well in Superbike Racing with the chain sets as well and different products that are being used. So they do actually have a much bigger presence than I think any of us really would have given them credit for. And uh, certainly it's uh, good to have them on board for the podcast. And on the podcast, we're going to switch gears now a little bit and uh, actually talk about MotoGP. Because, Neil, it's been a while since we've heard your voice. So uh, we might as well bring you back in now that you wouldn't have had much interest in talking about football or movies anyway. But uh, for the MotoGP news that we've got at the moment, probably one of the biggest news stories that we had since the start of the summer break was that we've got confirmation of calendar changes. So we're going to have another round in Portimao. And uh, that's in place of the Australian round, obviously in the flyaways at the end of the season. And it's going to be interesting to see whether or not we have more changes to the calendar. Obviously, it's very much COVID dependent. But uh, as it stands right now, Portimao in for a second round. I don't think anyone's going to complain with that one. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, Portimao in the end of the year, as we saw last year, is a pretty agreeable place to go to. Um, not a bad uh, spot is the um, the Algarve. And it, not really a surprise. I think everyone knew in the paddock without having confirmation that Australia wasn't going to go ahead this year, just there, you know, it's so difficult to get in and out of the country um, with uh, quarantining rules and things like that. I'm um, obviously one of the more, one of the strictest places in the world, I think, for uh, their quarantine setup. So no one realistically thought that it was going to be feasible for us to get in and out of there within seven or eight days as they kind of need to, to do whenever we're doing the, that final uh, stage of the season. Um, so yeah, so as it stands, we're, um, I think we're going to America, then we have a break, then we're going to, uh, uh Thailand and Malaysia and then back for two, uh, two races in, in Europe at the end of the season. So, um, I mean, I have to say still, um, you wouldn't be surprised if, if one of Malaysia or Thailand didn't go ahead just because of how COVID has played out there and how strict that they have been. Um, with regards to COVID rules, but um, yeah, as far as I'm, I'm aware, there could be a kind of a similar to Qatar situation where we're basically just kept in our own little bubble whenever we go there. Um, we're not allowed to leave our hotels, and we're ferried back and forth to the track on a on a on a kind of specially provided bus. So, um, you know, Qatar showed that that worked quite well and it was quite effective. So maybe we'll have a similar situation for Malaysia and Thailand. So, yeah. Um, 
changes the calendar. It does seem that Dorna are trying everything that they, they, they can to make sure that we have 19, 20 races this year. So, um, I mean, as long as we meet that target, I think it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, well, it does matter, obviously. But, um, you know, if we get if we reach that target, then that's the I think that's the most important thing. One of the things I was quite surprised about is the fact that uh, uh, Thailand and uh, Sepang are back-to-back I know there'd been talk about it before, but there were worries that uh, uh, about the logistics of it, about actually getting the trucks, uh, all of the equipment from um, uh, Buriram down to Sepang. Um, it, it was not as easy, even though it's sort of it, just in terms of distance, it's it's doable because you've you know you've got to pack everything up on Sunday night and then get it down to uh, Sepang in basically in time for sort of Tuesday Wednesday. Um, in terms of distance, it's doable, but just the, the the logistics of it all, getting through the border, all the rest of it, that was going to be quite difficult. Yeah, it's not too bad though, because you can do a charter flight from Buriram Airport over to to KL. So at least for all the equipment, it should be relatively easy to do that. But uh, it is one of those things that obviously, whenever we've had it with that gap in the past, it's been there for a reason as well. I mean, everybody's getting kind of jittery now uh, when it comes again to border controls and whatever else with the Delta variant, uh, variant um, you know, flaring up in Europe. I mean, I think as even the US is starting to see a spike in numbers in certain uh, states as well. So it's, I mean, if I take a, a small example, um, we're recording this on Tuesday and yesterday, uh, you know, the Dutch MX Grand Prix, um, the MXGP was uh, round four of the championship due to happen uh, this weekend, this coming weekend in Os. And uh, the organisers of the race met with the local government as well as um, in front motor racing, you know, the, the dawn of sports and motocross uh, to see what could happen. Because Dave, you'll know much more about this than me, but the Dutch have imposed some, you know, tighter regulations when it comes to um, events and, well, spectator events, certainly. Um, there was some doubts as to whether the, the race could go ahead because it seemed that events over the space of 24 hours couldn't actually occur. Uh, which put a limit on things like music festivals. Um, well, the, the, to cut a long story short, the race is going ahead um, with up to 5,000 fans, uh, but on the provision that each of them have a seat. So I'm not too sure how the organisers are going to manage to acquire 5,000 seats. Um, it, again, it does sound very much like a sort of box-ticking exercise. Um, I, but, you know, you would imagine that things like Red Bull Ring, um, you know, the two stops we have for MetaGP in Austria, uh, was supposed to happen without any kind of social distancing or restrictions happening there at the beginning of August. I just wonder whether that's going to change because we've seen, you know, with entry policies uh, for Germany, for UK nationals, that's that's been very much uh, strict and, and imposed, um, you know, at a moment's notice. So I think MotoGP is, is, you know, to try and use some sort of euphemism like a boat in rocky sea at the moment. Um, I think it has to try and dodge between the islands and try and find some calmer waters uh, just to make sure that all those rounds can happen. Yeah, I mean, what happened in Holland was basically they relaxed the restrictions and uh, everyone went out. And then two weeks later, there was a massive spike in cases, um, uh, somewhat predictably. And so they've reintroduced some new restrictions, which are... Uh, as you say, you know, the, the events longer than 24 hours. So, you know, multi-day events are, are no longer possible with fans and uh, the, the concerts and in festivals, that sort of thing can only happen if you're sitting down uh, and, and, and uh, uh, things have to close at midnight, that sort of thing. And I think these are the sort of restrictions we're going to see imposed that uh, it won't be sort of opening up and then locking down again. It'll be uh, sort of opening up and then sort of strange restrictions. But some of these strange restrictions, you know, like a motocross uh, event over two days is it's not really a two-day event it's not really a two-day festival it's two one-day events uh, but it's hard to draw up a set of consistent rules to sort of uh, to, to, to to express that so yeah I, uh, i'm afraid that these sort of things are going to happen but i think it's going to be more the case that they will be it'll be hard to do things with more fans um rather than uh it, 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 or it will affect fan numbers rather than the events and the calendar itself can I just say one thing, right? I'm going to say this now before I go to Assen. Dave, you just said Holland instead of the Netherlands. So whenever I say that in Assen, don't give me abuse, all right? I want to make that perfectly clear. If the locals are saying it, I can say it. I can't wait for the I can't wait for the Netherlands round of World SBK though, Dave. Are you going to be up at it? 
Uh, I'm coming up to see. I hope so. I've uh, I've sent the uh, email off. Uh, uh, I hope to. Uh, I was told to send more uh, information. Sent it off. So I hope to come up and uh, and uh, see you and berate you. I have to say that was my English. Uh, that was my British passport speaking. Calling it Holland's not my Dutch par- uh, passport. Well, I've I've heard you speak Dutch and it sounded completely different. So I'll give you a pass on that one, Dave. Um, We're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast. But when we come back, we're going to look at some of the rider market news and also some pretty interesting stories about potential wild cards coming up in the next couple of rounds of the MotoGP World Championship. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 Glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. We're going to move on to talk about a little bit about the rider market now as well, because there's been plenty of stories this uh, last few days just about uh, what we're going to see on the grid next year in MotoGP and the biggest story is Raul Fernandez it looks like he's going to be on a KTM next season obviously we've seen him have a lot of success this season in the Moto2 class on the IO bike but uh, David he's, it looks like he's going to step up to the Tech 12 bikes they're going to keep the same lineup that uh, we see in Moto2 this year with Remy Gardner and Raul Fernandez and just move them up onto a MotoGP bike what's your thoughts on it? Um, to an extent, I feel a little bit sorry for Danila Petrucci and Iker Lecuona, but um, that's you know it's just a very very tough com- uh, tough environment at the moment, and KTM just have a ridiculous number of uh, of talented riders. I think it's going to work. I think uh, you know Remy is obviously clear uh, uh, ready. He has plenty of experience in Moto Two class, and he's also really shown a lot of maturity in his riding. He's shown that he's growing up, uh, you know, becoming, uh, yeah, developing as a person, developing as a race, uh, understanding more what, what's needed. I think Fernandez too. Fernandez seems to be ready as well. You know, he's he's. Competitive, he's clearly competitive on a uh, on a Moto Two bike. Um, it's still a big step from Moto Two to Moto GP, but I don't think it's going to overwhelm him. The most important thing I think for uh, Fernandez is that he gets two years, that he gets a year to learn and then a year to deliver potentially. Um, but yeah, I I can see it working. I, I think it's. I mean, if I was KTM, I would have been sort of happy with it e- either way. Wouldn't wouldn't make a great deal of difference. I would uh, concur with that, Dave. I think um, I think Raul has been really sensational this year. I mean, it's a massive, massive turnaround. This time last year, um, we were still looking at a very raw Moto3 rider that um, clearly had the speed but didn't quite have the racecraft, um, couldn't really manage a race that well, um, was unable to pick his moments and, and pick, his, pick his times to attack in the group. And we regularly saw him at the start of last year in Moto3, being one of the fastest guys in free practice, qualifying well, but then getting marred in the group and not really, not really being able to um, to show his, you know, show his full potential in the closing stages of the race, and it's just quite remarkable. We've got to a, a year on, and he's not only in Moto Two, which was uh, quite unexpected at the time, but he's been performing so well. Um, I mean, he's got six podiums from nine races, uh, three wins, and his ride at Aston was just sensational. I mean, um, you know, he made a a big mistake early on and, and had to recover I think from a, around ninth place and did it just so methodically um, so I would say I mean no one no one has ever been this strong in, in a in a rookie season in Moto2 uh, halfway through the season I don't even think Mark Marquez was uh, uh, you know had a, a set of results uh, this impressive um, and it does look that um, the Raul's going to charge and, and challenge Remy right the way through the season. I mean, Remy was very much off that opinion um, after the race at Aston, looking towards the second half of the season. And, you know, say Raul does rack up another couple of races, uh, race wins, pushes Remy until till the end, then you would have to say, yeah, I mean, what? Okay, he could stay and maybe win the championship in Moto2, but, um, you know, fast-tracking riders through the class in the past hasn't done any harm to Maverick Vinales or Juan Mir. Um, KTM MotoGP package is very good and let's be honest KTM need to kind of move this conveyor belt of talent up quite quickly because they've still got other guys um, that they 
will want to be bringing forward uh, sometime in the near future as well. So, um, yeah, I think it. I think it's a move that definitely makes sense. I am. Um, I'm a little. Uh, what's the word? Split on it because I believe it might have been too soon for Fernandez to step up, and I think you know, you know, MotoGP is it's almost like a pre-pandemic Tokyo subway. I mean, there's not really much room in the class. There's, uh, you know, once you get there, you have to hit the ground running uh, immediately. Um, you know, it seems like they're wedging as much talent in there as possible. I mean, I think the days of, with full respect, you know, a Simeon or, a, you know, um, a Carol Abraham, you know, pretty much occupying a bike just because uh, finished. Um you know, and also the sounds from Fernandez, his management, KTM was very much like a, a cautionary approach, um, you know, a, a relaxed approach. You know, we're not rushing anywhere. We don't need to be straight into MotoGP. Um, you know, the public declarations were pretty much along those lines. So the fact that it's looking even more likely that he will make the step um, is a little bit of a surprise. But then if you look at KTM's more global view, they're making that Tech 3 squad pretty much what they want it to be, which is the final half step jump into maybe the sort of the full factory team and if you have their two Moto2 riders on MotoGP bikes next season then it's really it makes the whole KCM structure all the way down to something like the Austrian Talent Cup as uh, you know kind of very much uh, fully formed so I think it appeals from that respect but then of course you know like we've seen with Yamaha it opens up other questions and other doors um who jumps into the Ayo team um how does Ayo feel ultimately about being Moto2 Moto3 world championship potential to having to reset the process um you know I know Herve Poncharal as well in Tech3 had ambitions of you know fighting for you know victories and podiums like he had done previously with people like um Jonas Folger Paul Spargaro Bradley Smith Cal Crutchlow um now he's you know, having to take a former rider, you know, Remy Gardner, and also having a rookie, well, two two rookies in the MotoGP class. How, how does the team feel about that, that being essentially a progressive step? Um, so there's lots of sort of questions and complications in the move. But, um, you know, like Neil says, Fernandez's potential has been proven. So why stick around? Uh, Neil raised an interesting point there about uh, Fernandez not looking much in Moto3 and then going to Moto2 and making an absolutely devastating impact. The question it raises for me is, is Moto3 actually a very good class? I mean, is it any good? Does it does it teach riders anything? Does it uh, produce... Is it any good at developing riders, teaching the riders the racecraft that they need in uh, other... Uh, uh, you know, as they move up? We've seen this problem of, uh, you know, people hanging around waiting for a tow. This has always been the case. Um, but it seems to be getting worse and worse. And there's fewer and fewer riders who are actually, there are a, a group of riders who just spend all of their time riding around, looking around, looking for a toe, looking uh, to get behind someone else to go fast, uh, rather than actually trying to do it on their, uh, uh, trying to do it on their own. Um, I think this is, a, you know, bad for rider development. And I think it's, uh, it, it's an interesting question as to what Moto3 is for and whether it's any good at producing, uh, uh, producing and identifying talent. Because obviously Fernandez did not look fantastic in Moto3. He looked like there was potential there, but it didn't really seem to come out. And then he goes to Moto2 and, you know, just rips it up. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. Again, Canet, Aaron Canet looks like a sensation in Moto3 was fight you know fighting all year long for for the championship was a real championship contender moves up to moto 2 and he's not exactly struggling but he's not made he's not made a huge impact he's not made the kind of impact that fernandez did so it's really really difficult i think adam dave's raised a few interesting points there but i think the most interesting one is that fernandez didn't do much in moto 3 now you certainly thought different at the end of last season uh, I mean, Dave's question about does Moto3 serve a purpose? I think ultimately it does with Racecraft. And then, you know, you have to ask questions about Fernandez then and say, why why didn't he put himself in better positions? And certainly in, the, in you know, the crucial last two to three laps of Moto3 races to, to obtain the results. I think one thing that was beyond dispute was his capabilities over one lap. Um, I'm not so sure how many pole positions he had, Neil. Maybe you can chip in here. Um, but he was prolific with that. Yeah, he was. I can't, I can't can't remember off the top of my head, Adam. But yeah, he was. I think top six in qualifying all year, mainly on the front row. So you could say, you know, in terms of an apprenticeship, uh, six there. Thanks for the the gesture over the video, Steve. Six uh, pole positions in in Moto three. So, um, you know, one one thing. Sorry to change subject in my mind, but it's what Dave 
brought up earlier was, you know, two riders in to MotoGP means two riders out. So Danilo Petrucci, one narrative around this guy is, did he really have a fair crack at the whip, um, you know, on, on the KTM? And Ike Lukwana, you could say for a rider that only had two podium positions and was very much um, uh, fortunate to seize an opportunity to jump into MotoGP. Um, I think he has a handful of top 10 finishes. Um, he, you know, would now be looking to go back to Moto2. And I think there is quite a strong um, heritage of riders who have gone out of MotoGP, gone back to Moto2 and have, you know, had pretty, a decent rate of success. I mean, I'm thinking of people like Tony Elias, uh, Tom Lutti, I think went back to be a Grand Prix winner, Sam Lowe's, of course. Um, you know, there, there are various riders. Um, Happy Sirene is probably the most recent example of a rider that went from MotoGP to Moto2 and is still looking for something. But, um, you know, I do wonder what will happen to these two guys because they are still prominent members of the grid at the moment. So, um, yeah. Yeah, well, for someone like Petrucci, it's going to be interesting to see what happens for him because he said previously he doesn't want to go back to the Superbike paddock. Apparently now he's got two offers on the table and I'd be surprised if one of them isn't from manufacturer like Honda. Maybe even Ducati as well. Ducati are, are quite interested in making changes. They were going hard after Top Rack. So he could have some good offers on the table to go to Superbikes. But obviously for any rider, they don't really want to make a step back from MotoGP. But for some, they're not going to have much choice. Lekwon is another one that, obviously enough, he hasn't he hasn't had the results in MotoGP. But he went in far too, far too early, far too young. It was just a set of circumstances that worked out that way for him. And now he'll probably move back to Moto2 and then you just have to wait and see what he can do. I think um, just before I speak about Lacona and uh, Petrucci, one other thing about Fernandez that I think was will work in his favour is that Aki Ayo has always said that he's a real worker. Like um, His attitude away from the track is absolutely spot on. He said that there were times during last year, 2020, that he actually had to tell Fernandez to relax a little bit with his training he was doing too much he was overtraining in certain respects and we know that like you know ktm really love that sort of thing you know a guy that just really grifts and and, and puts the the kind of hard yards in when he's training away from the track so i think that's maybe something as well that might work in raul's favor and um, but just looking at, at petrucci i mean it's interesting that you said about the superbike offer steve that will test his resolve because he had obviously spoken about um, how he wants to do off-road racing and um, doing something like the Paris-Dakar is something that he intends to do in the future. And he said that, I mean, I think it was in an interview with uh, our colleague uh, Lewis Duncan for Autosport, where he said that, um, you know, if he doesn't get a seat in MotoGP next year, he, in he intends to go enduro riding, off-road riding, maybe for a factory like KTM, maybe doing an event like the Paris-Dakar, just completely shifting uh, his career because he said he's had an unconventional career and he intends to continue that path sometime into the future. So it's uh, it's an interesting one. Um, and it is uh, it is sad that uh, a guy like Petrucci, who, you know, is a race winner, MotoGP, multiple podium finisher, great, great guy, great character. Um, it is sad that this uh, this kind of short experience with KTM has been so fleeting. It's a bit of one of those situations, though, where at the end of the day, whenever he got his factory Ducati seat, I remember we were all sitting around saying, well, what's the expectation for him? It's that he'll win a Grand Prix. He ended up winning at Mugello, so it's not a bad one to win as an Italian rider. He won another one as well. But uh, Petrucci's been able to maximize everything about himself, and that's turned him into a Grand Prix winner and shows that he warrants a spot in the grid, but spots on the grid are just hard to find at the moment and uh, it's about whether or not there'll be a seat available. Dave, I want to just take take it back to what you were saying about Moto3 riders in Moto2. When you look at the championship standings, obviously enough, Remy Gardner's leading the championship. Sam Lowe's is up there inside the top five. But when you look at Fernandez, Bezeki, Digia, there's three riders inside the top five that came from Moto3 and we're all established Moto3 front runners that have adapted well to a Moto2 bike. It does show that the cream does rise to the top. But obviously in the Moto3 class, because now it's very different to what we would have had in the 125 era where Aprilia effectively picked two, maybe three riders to have a massive machinery advantage, we have it now where it's a much more equal class. And you're almost looking for those high points as much as anything else whenever you look at young riders. Uh, yeah, um, Neil made an interesting point about Neil uh, about uh, Fernandez having a lot of uh, you know about him qualifying well. That once again is about being able to do a lap on your own. I mean, talking to uh, Peter Bomb, who obviously has a, a you know crew chief and Eurosport car commentator, he has a lot of experience in Moto Two and Moto, uh, Moto Three. 
And he says, like, the first thing you look for in a Moto3 rider is who's doing the time on their own. Um, when he's watching uh, when he's watching practice, he's looking for riders who are out there riding around on their own um, because that's the difference. That That's the real difference. It's the riders who will actually get uh, – you can win a race if you happen to be in the front group uh, and you make the right decisions on the last lap. Uh, you can almost, almost luck your way into, into victory at some tracks. Um, pole positions are much more difficult. It's much more difficult to actually, you know, get a toe to a pole. Um, and I think it's uh, the, the the riders, you know, the, the the people you were talking about. Yes, they have. Uh, they had success in Moto three, and that was one of the reasons why they went up to uh, Moto two. But the, one of the reasons they had success was because they proved that they can actually ride on their own rather than having to rely on the slipstream and using, uh, uh, you know, sort of you know stealing speed from other people to uh, to, to make yourself faster, sort of thing. Obviously, enough. As well as the KTM seat at Tectois, there's also a lot of talk about the Petronas Yamaha seat as well. And uh, Neil, we've seen lots of names thrown into the pot. I saw Matt Burt was writing this week about Jonathan Ray being linked with it as well. And speaking to Johnny, it's obviously one of the targets for him, but not too sure whether or not it's going to be too much to that really. But uh, what are you hearing about that seat? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting that uh, that Jonathan Ray was linked. I mean, uh, it was pretty much a case of it would probably be easier to name who wasn't linked with that seat um, in uh, Matt Burt's interview with Johan Stigerfeld. I think there were names like Pedroza, <laughs> Davizioso. I don't know how realistic um, someone like Danny Pedroza would be to come to, to make a racing comeback, go to Yamaha. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it's it's tough to say, really. I mean, first of all, we have to work out whether Franco Morbidelli remains there, um, and then you have to think about the fact that they'll probably continue with their, you know, um, one factory bike and then one sort of uh, what a spec bike that they call it the Franco Morbidelli is currently on. Um, I mean, I think we've all said this multiple times on the pod. We would love to see Jonathan Ray in MotoGP. It would be fantastic to 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 really see what he could do. Um, with a good team and a good package, which the Petronas uh, SRT bike certainly is. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it still seems like a, a very much a bit of a long shot um, for for that to kind of fall into place and and him to leave his his world championship winning team in Superbikes for that. Yeah, I I heard a rumor about it at Donington and kind of discounted it because we've heard those rumors a lot of times in the past and i asked johnny about it during the week then and uh, he did say that it's something that he's working on wants to have an opportunity to go but from my perspective i'd be surprised if he did end up going like obviously enough it would have to be for the exact same spec of machinery as what you're getting on a factory bike and that's not what top rack was offered he was offered the older spec bike, like what Frank was on this year. And that was one of the key reasons why he turned it down. So it'd be interesting to see what Yamaha do offer, if they do offer something to Ray. But certainly as it is right now, Yamaha want to have all four riders contracted to Yamaha rather than have one go to the team. I think there's a, I mean, there's a couple of small complications in play, isn't there? I mean, in my personal opinion, he has to go. If there's, if there's any possibility of that contract coming through an email, he has to sign it because... Um, you know, he's, he's a legend, he's achieved everything to achieve in one series. Um, you know, he's right at the top of the record books. So, I mean, of course, there's his current contract with Kawasaki. Um, you know, the second thing, of course, like we said before, is the BT Sport uh, TV deal uh, promotes UK riders in MotoGP, of which there's a certain absence of them at the moment, and even potential stars coming through. Um, and the, the other minor thing is, you know, he's obviously an important athlete for Monster Energy, um, you know, and they already back well, they, they have deals in place in the Petronas team. So there are kind of um, little uh, sort of obstacles, but also, you know, little fast escalators to make this deal happen. And um, it would be great to see. I think it would be, it would answer a lot of the questions that, that, that still remain around Johnny Ray, um, you know, as, as a, an elite motorcycle racer. Uh, I, I really hope it happens because, again, it would shove superbike again to the forefront to say you know what is this series like what kind of speed is it keeping what kind of talent is it keeping to be able to thrive in grand prix i do wonder you know 
I mean, obviously, Jonathan Ray, his ambition is 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 sort of you know beyond question. Is is clearly that that uh, uh, you can see just see it in the work that he he wants. He would probably want to take Pere Ribe with him uh, as a crew chief um, because obviously him and Pere have worked incredibly well. Question is whether Patronus would want that or whether Yamaha would want that. But the other thing is, I mean, he's going to be thirty-five next year. Um, at the beginning of next year, um, he has what one or two kids, I think. They're both sort of school age. Um, it's no longer thirteen race weekends plus some testing away. It becomes nineteen, twenty, uh, twenty-one race weekends away plus uh, a lot of testing that that's a very different pattern of life there's a lot more stress there's a lot more um social there's a lot more uh, sponsor activities there's a lot more media activities uh, it's a it's a huge huge uh, chunk of your personal life which you then have to give up um, and I wonder whether Jonathan Ray is at the point in his life, w whether he wants to do that or not. From a professional p perspective, I can totally see him wanting to do it to prove his point. He's, like I said, he still has that ambition. He's arguably the second most ambitious motorcycle racer on the planet behind Mark Marquez. Um, but, uh, whether he would want to just from a purely personal point. Yeah, I think as well, you have to look at the way that Ray's been throughout his career. He stayed at Tankade for a long time. He's obviously stayed at Kawasaki for a long time. So change isn't something that he usually looks to make. And uh, I think as well as that, if he's going, it would have to be for a decent length contract too. Because otherwise, why would Parariba leave? Reba's on six figures to be a crew chief in Kawasaki. He's on a Kawasaki Japan contract. So why would he look to leave as well if it was only for a year? So there's a lot of factors that are going to go into it. Yeah, but I doubt, you know, Petronas are really going to shift their team framework too much. I mean, if they wouldn't do it for Valentino Rossi, then I can't see why they would do it for Jonathan Ray. Um, you know, I'm not too sure how many people Jonathan would be able to bring across, but... Um, Yes, Steve, like you say, I mean, from a personal point of view, Dave, every point you make is, is, is very sound. And of course, financially, you wouldn't have thought Jonathan would need a, a vastly mega millions contract. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure he's got financial security. It'd be purely from a, um, a you know, professional uh, thirst to try and achieve something in, in MotoGP. Um, but, you know, in terms of other options for the seat, uh, what else do you do? I mean, do Petronas revert to... Um, being the young supplier team that they originally were filling when Quattararo was hired? I mean, do they take another risk on a Moto2 rider? Well, I think that's what the team want to do. Now, whether Ray would be seen as a different kettle of fish compared to someone like Rossi would be quite interesting because obviously you bring Ray in, there would be a lot of buzz about what's going to happen. And you've also got the chance of maybe surprising some people with some good results. A, a superbike rider coming across to GP and being able to have any sort of success would be a massive story. That would be good for Aslan. And then if you're able to have it where there's a young rider coming through, you know, a Bezeki or whoever you're, you're looking to take up from Moto2, it could be an interesting one. Yeah, the the other the other thing is that yeah, um, uh, like you say, uh, having a big name uh, on one bike whoever it is does mean that you can bring another by uh, that you bring your second rider along and shelter him a little bit from uh, or shelter them a little bit from uh, uh you know from too much pressure from too much publicity uh you know that they will be the second rider until they prove that they can you know that, that, that they deserve to be there on their own sort of thing I think one thing Adam, Adam obviously mentioned about BT and the importance of that deal we've seen a lot of rumours about the financial stability of the Petronas team as well. And uh, one of the big things about that team is last year they had to spend so much money on Franco's bonuses because that was a team contract that, that has apparently put them under a bit of stress. And that's where a lot of the BT rumours come from. And if your option is between having Jonathan Ray on the bike and having Jake Dixon on the bike, because Dixon's the name that's constantly being linked to it, I think that it's a no-brainer to go with Ray because, Neil, you've obviously paid a lot of attention to Moto2 all the way through this season and Dixon, with his injuries, with different things, hasn't been able to perform and it'd be massive jump to jump onto a MotoGP bike. Obviously, if you were looking for a British rider to come from Moto2, you'd be looking at someone like Sam Lowe's, but Lowe's is winning races through this season. He's been at the front all the way through. He seems very happy at Mark VDS. Again, he's another rider that, a bit like Ray, would need to have long-term stability to go to Petronas. 
Yeah, uh, you look at the standings, Jake Dixon, I think, is, is 21st at the moment. It's been a tough season. He showed fantastic speed at the first race. He finished seventh there um, after such a long injury layoff, like a really serious career-threatening injury, um, I have to say. Um, so that was quite remarkable that he was so quick in preseason and that he, he started the season so well, but it just hasn't quite um, come together. Obviously, we could tell there was maybe a bit of unrest in that team they switched the crew chiefs um look i still think jake dixon has a has a, has a good future in in moto 2 ahead but with regards to if he's done enough to, to earn a moto gp seat at the moment um then yeah i think the the point you make about ray um is 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 a good one you know you you would definitely think that ray would probably have more because of his experience and, and, and what he's achieved in his career so far, you know, would have more in hand over Jake. Um, that's not to say that, you know, Jake can't make it up sometime in the future um, to MotoGP. But, um, yeah, at the moment, big, big, big step. Basically, you know, the, the case of Ralph Fernandez is one where, you know, if opportunity comes along, do you take it? You know, if, if a contract or a chance is there to step into the premier class, you know, you, you'd have to be pretty bold to turn that down because of the way the rider market moves around. Dixon could shine and be fighting for the world championship in 2022, but then there's no kind of opening for him in the next two to three years. That's, you know, that what he wants to do um, in MotoGP. So that's something. I mean, I know Fernandez, and like you said, Neil, 21st in the championship, but there's absolutely no, you know, basis for comparison there. I mean, for me, his name shouldn't be in contention for a MotoGP seat. But it's, just, it's kind of weird at the moment in, you know, kind of the landscape of MotoGP, how riders are either entering the class as rookies or they're like beginners on that kind of machinery. Or we're talking about sort of wily old dogs like Andrea Dovizioso who vanishes for a holiday and, you know, fancies some some dirt racing. And, you know, people like Danny Pedrosa, Cal Crutchlow, other names, you know, set to make wildcard appearances. It's very much kind of one extreme to the other. Yeah, it does look like we're going to see... Pedroza potentially on the KTM bike in the next few rounds. Crutchlow looks like he could be replacing Franco Morbidelli. I know that was something that was the big rumour around the Donington paddock last weekend. And then even GP1 today saying that Dovi's going to have another couple of days testing and then potentially on the bike at the Mizano round. So it is interesting that to see that these manufacturers, obviously they want to have the experienced test riders but they also want to have them get out there get some racing experience for someone like Davi absolutely crucial for him to be able to get a race under his belt after a year on the sidelines well even with Pedrosa Steve I mean I do I mean it's something that's been rumoured what for the last two seasons there's been some kind of mid 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 season talk of what race Danny Pedrosa is going to come back and do um, you know, apparently, you know, there was a chance for him to filter back into the Red Bull KTM team and race again in MotoGP, which he declined. Um, so, you know, uh, as we know, Danny Pedrosa, well, he's, he's not really one for the frivolities of, of MotoGP and all the fuss that sort of centers around that 20, that 25 laps on a Sunday. Um, you know, you would imagine if he does make a race appearance for the rest of this year, then it has to be with some kind of development priority. Uh, for the for the RC16 for for the next season, um, I personally wouldn't find it super exciting to see you know where he would come back or you know um, I'm sure the prospect of uh, you know talking to us fills Danny with dread and by the same token I, I can't say um, I know Dave knows one or two people that would be utterly over the moon with Danny Pedrosa's return but uh, it's. You know, of course, it'd be interesting to see him on the grid, but, you know, it's not something I would wait with bated breath for. Same for Dibizioso. In fact, you know, Crutchlow's, maybe it's a partisan thing, but the Crutchlow return on the Yamaha would be uh, quite fascinating, really, just to see how in, in tune with that motorcycle he is and, and what he's contributing, because we haven't heard too much uh, since Qatar. Yeah, I think that would be a, a fun thing to see, certainly Crutchlow um, back. Um, although anyone that uh, is potentially replacing Franco Morbidelli uh, in the Austria races is looking at a pretty uh, tough, tough task and a pretty tough deal to show anything because they're going to be on a two-year-old bike at the fastest track on the calendar. Um, that That is no easy task whatsoever. And just the, the thing about the Pedroza thing, I mean, it's I find it quite confusing that him, he's repeatedly linked and, and even like Pip Byrer is saying repeatedly to journalists and to the press, like, the opportunities there if he wants to take it he can do a wild card wherever he wants to do it um i was speaking to someone involved with ktm before the summer break started and they were talking about pedroza and how um 
in any test he's been doing recently, he's been three seconds off the pace and how they almost felt that his maybe influence over testing and input on the bike was waning somewhat. So I, I, I kind of, I kind of feel to compute what, what the story is. Is this, is this maybe like a carrot that uh, the pit bar is, is, is hanging in front of him to try and G him up a bit? Do they maybe feel that Pedroza isn't performing to his full capabilities as a, in his current testing capacity? And this is a, a way to try and motivate him to get, to get back up to, to full racing speed. I find it quite strange um, because the longer it goes on. Pedroza coming back as a wild card when he first signed for KTM made sense, but the longer he's been away, it seems to me the less likely he is to be competitive. Uh, it's a it's a strange one. This is this is why uh, Ducati had Michele Piro racing in the Italian Championship uh, and had him doing wild cards uh, in MotoGP, wild cards in uh, occasional wild cards in World Superbikes. It's because that that race speed is something is the first thing that you lose that sort of you know that that intensity of racing uh, my uh, impression of pedrosa from the outside is that uh, i can't see him racing i can't see why he would want to race uh, from a from the perspective of all the nonsense which goes hand in hand with racing, all the media stuff. So having to talk to us idiots, um, it's just it just sucks time. Um, however, uh, the fact that it, if this is correct, if he is you know losing a bit of pace, then the only way he will find that pace is by actually getting on track and racing with other riders. He's getting on uh, on track, um, getting stuck in, uh, mixing it up with other riders, following them around, learning from them, watching them, observing them, uh, getting that kick of adrenaline to uh, take that little bit more of a risk, push a little bit harder uh so from ktm's perspective i can see why you would want to would want to do it and i would think also perhaps from Pedro, for pedrosa it would be a way for him to gain some speed yeah and i think that's one of the key things for any of the test riders we've seen at different times over the last few years stoner is the only one that's been able to jump on a bike without being on it for you know months at a time and being able to do a good job and neil that's one of the big reasons i think that crutchlow is going to end up doing austria and potentially silverstone as well is because we've got testing in november and uh, if he's not racing in the meantime he won't he won't have sat in the moto gp bike for a year and uh, you can't just jump onto one of these bikes especially someone like cal that doesn't do an awful lot of riding at the best of times when throughout his career he was never one of those riders out motocrossing or flat tracking or you know taking a stock bike out on a track so i think that being able to to ride a couple of races is going to be crucial for him and that's why with morbidelli being injured you'd imagine that this is a key opportunity for him to be able to show yamaha how committed he is to being their test rider long term there's good money in being a test rider and uh, you know, at the end of the day, Cal's not on like a lot of other riders. You need to make sure you're able to pay the bills. So I think that could be one of the key factors for him. Uh, yips, it could be. I mean, Yamaha, like we saw at Jorge Lorenzo last year, um, you know, they, their testing team, their testing program isn't, let's say, in full swing uh, all season long. I think Cal's had a, a couple of tests uh, so far this year. Um, but you would say fairly limited if you compare it to you know, the likes of Piro or, or maybe Stefan Bradle um, for Ducati and, and Honda, respectively. Um, yeah, I mean, Cal always gives the impression at the end of last year when he announced that he wasn't going to continue as a full-time rider that he, he didn't really seem that fussed whenever uh, the idea of coming back as a wild card, um, you know, it never really seemed that that was, you know, something that drove him on. It did seem that there was a, a kind of air of finality uh, to his career, certainly in... Um, his racing career, I mean, um, certainly at Portimao last year. But as you say, Steve, um, it's it's good experience to get up to speed again uh, after a time away. And, you know, the chance of, of Cal being on the grid for Silverstone is uh, a mouthwatering one. I mean, the Yamaha is a great bike uh, for Silverstone. Cal has a tremendous record that Silverstone produced probably his best MotoGP performance at Silverstone in 2016. Um won their double race win in, in Superbike as well. So, yeah, you, you would say that um, that 
that would probably be a big factor as well if he was to come back for those three races. You know, two, he's not going to learn a great deal in Austria on a two-year-old bike. I don't feel getting completely um, smoked on the on the straights, but um, you know, it's there to build up for for Silverstone, which would be a, a, a huge event for BT Sport, a huge event for the British GP, and um, you know, great uh, you know, great coverage for that team. Um, just, uh, you know, on your point about Pedrosa, Neil, I think your hypothesis could be pretty sound. I mean, he signed a contract last year to be a test rider for KTM this season. Um, you know, that's inevitably going to be coming up for renewal at some point. So maybe this is KTM's way of, you know, relighting the fire, uh, trying to get a little bit more out of, you know, the feedback that he's provided over the last three years. But, you know, it does, I mean, we kind of get news and we get talk and get some bench racing from, you know, silly season. But the whole test rider thing gives a, a new sub layer to that because if you do have, um, you know, capable riders like Davizioso, uh, like Pedrosa, like Crutchlow, even Folger, I mean, these guys, um, you know, unless they have some sort of NDAs as part of their testing contract, they're going to be swapping saddles inside the paddock, taking potential knowledge and ideas from manufacturers to another one. Um, you know, it's possible that KTM don't want to lose Danny for as much as he, what he knows about is coming up in KTM for the contribution that he actually makes to the the current project. And um, the same for Crutchlow, uh, or you know, even even um, Davizioso as well. If he's been riding the Aprilia on and off most of this year, he could be an acquisition for for another for another brand. You know, so it's um, it is kind of fascinating what these riders who don't particularly want to race but still want to ride a motorcycle fast can can still bring to the fabric of of the the factory teams. Yeah, and what they can bring to the silly season as well, like you said, Ad, because even if you were to take the example of someone like Crutchlow, if, for instance, we do see him on the bike in Austria, that could also be an indication of what we're going to see for Franco Morbidelli as well, because riders typically don't want to sit out unless there's a benefit for them. And for someone like Franco with his injury, David, this could be one of those cases where he could have made a deal with Yamaha to allow himself to be fully fit for the end of the season and give himself that best chance for next year. Because obviously enough, David, an injury like what Franco has, you can come back from and ride. Bradley Smith had to do it. But it can be one of those injuries that takes a long term to actually get back to full fitness. So it could be one of those indications as well. The fact, because he, you know, he has five weeks to recover before Austria. If he's taking the the, the two Austrias out, that adds another three weeks. So that takes up to almost eight weeks. Uh, if he misses Silverstone, then that would be uh, again that would add another couple of weeks. And I think that is the clearest indi indication that he has actually signed uh, for Yamaha or his at least his mentality is to be prepared to be a full factory Yamaha rider in a factory team next year, uh, rather than, you know, seeing if he can get a top five or a top six at, uh, um, uh, at the Red Bull ring or at Silverstone. It seems to me that he really is looking to the future, the future being 2022. Uh, and I don't think he would be getting, uh, he would be investing this much uh, if he thought it was only going to be for uh, another year with Patronus. Obviously enough, we're going to be back on the Paddock Pass podcast next week. And uh, that'll be just before I head off to Aston for uh, the next round of World SBK. But Neil, what's your plan in the meantime? My plan is to stay COVID-free, Steve, surprisingly enough, which uh, is prov proving to be a more difficult uh, exercise in Barcelona uh, than I first imagined when I came back from uh, the Netherlands. I think I know four or five people that currently have COVID. Um, they introduced a new set of restrictions yesterday, um, which, you know, are not too crazy like they were before. Um, things are closing up here again just after midnight. Um, but there is talk that uh, the the curfew could uh, return. I think um, certain communities uh, in Spain have actually requested a return of, of curfew, uh, places like Valencia and I think um, the Balearic Islands as well. So you never know whether that could uh, that could make a reappearance sometime soon. But yeah, other than that, Steve, just uh, some relaxing. I mean, I must say, I'm, I'm really enjoying this this time off. Um, and uh, yeah, just uh, just just chilling out. Um, yeah, nothing really, nothing really that exciting. But yeah, some nights needed uh, chill out time. 
Setting good high bars there, Neil, for the summer <laughs> break. Adam, what about you? Um, we've got MSGP events, obviously, in Holland and the Czech Republic. Uh, but the next travel for me will be Belgium uh, in the first weekend of August in Lommel. Uh, that's, of course, if, you know, uh, the, the event there survives the latest uh, rounds of, um, like Neil said, COVID restrictions. Otherwise, um, a bit of a holiday, actually, Steve. Um, you know, the break in the MotoGP calendar, you know, is quite free. Uh, MXGP is still one-day formats, so we'll be at the beach next week with the family. Uh, that's the plan. Dave, what about yourself? Uh, riding, mo- well, riding bicycles if it doesn't rain and riding motorbikes if it doesn't rain. Uh, and, and if it does rain, then probably sitting indoors writing about buying motorbikes. Probably sitting indoors watching bicycles as well, Dave. We've got a couple of good days of the terror coming up as well. This is when it's all going to be done in industry. We've got a couple of Cat 2s and the 1 today. Tomorrow's got, uh, well, the day the podcast comes out, two Cat 1s and a non-classified climb as well to finish. So I know what I'm doing the next few days. And uh, that, that should take me all the way up until Paris on Sunday. And then after that, yeah, I'll have to start thinking in terms of getting ready for heading over to, heading over to see you, Dave going to be uh, nice to catch up again it will be it will be nice to actually sort of see you see what you look like as a human being oh uh, no that's not gonna be nice but uh in, in the in the meantime for all of our supporters on the paddock pass podcast we want to say a big thank you to everyone that's supporting us on patreon you can go to patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast and throughout the season that's where we do extra shows obviously during the course of the summer break that's taking a little bit of a step back just so that everyone's able to actually have a break but uh, we'll have another couple of extra shows coming up over the next few weeks we have also got obviously the uh, paddock pass paddock Pad, paddock pass podcast paddock insiders and uh, on that we have the paddock notes show during the course of a grand prix weekend where the four of us get on a zoom call once the debriefs are finished and uh, get everyone up to date as quickly as possible so if you want to check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast you can support the podcast for as little as three dollars a month to get that extra content so from myself steve english from adam wheeler david emmett neil morrison big thank you to everyone for listening to today's paddock pass podcast presented by fly racing and rental street and until the next time in the show see you next time this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the libertines all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com